Hey, I'm David Gunger, and welcome to Undaunted. This season, we are focusing on stories of peacemakers who embody our principles and practices of peacemaking. You can find those principles and practices at telusgroup.org. Today's episode focuses on holding competing truths in tension. If we're working towards a common good, we must allow for the fact that others hold the truth too. And sometimes the other's truth might feel opposed to what we also know to be true. Peacemaking recognizes that my story isn't the only story. Engaging the truths and experiences of others, even when they do not reconcile with our own, doesn't undermine our legitimacy. It instead opens up possibilities for a better future for all. Niels Bohr puts it this way, the opposite of fact is falsehood, but the opposite of profound truth may very well be another profound truth. Our guest today, Sarah Pearl Benezra, is a peace activist, storyteller, and dialogue facilitator. Since 2014, Sarah has served as an educator and program director with Jerusalem Peace Builders. In today's episode, we will explore how our stories don't need to negate the experience of others, and how we all have different vantage points of truth. So my name is Sarah Perle Benezra. I'm a storyteller, educator, and social justice activist, and um, I help people share their stories. I was born in France, but my family is from Algeria, and my father is Israeli, and I moved here to Israel about 16, 17 years ago now. And all of this background, all of this, where is my family from, how I ended up being born where I was born, to me, the way to make sense of all the things was through stories. Listening to stories, gathering stories, collecting stories, and then sharing them. And being here, I understood how storytelling was an important tool for people to connect and to just to learn how to listen to one another. And so I've been doing storytelling as a tool for peace building and social justice for the past 10 years. Sarah, what type of groups are you working with? So I work with mixed groups of Palestinians and Israelis. Palestinians who are either citizens of Israel or Palestinians from the West Bank or when it's online, even Palestinians from Gaza. And the thing is that if you put some of us Israelis or Palestinians in the same room with, I would say, no facilitation, first, we would not share stories, we would share narratives. We would put ourselves into the feet of some kind of official representative ambassador that has to carry on their shoulders the entire narrative of our people. And so it would be very big, heavy, wide, dramatic. And so that's something that I've experienced as a participant when I was in my early 20s. And it's also how my identity as a daughter of an Israeli was built. It was around those big themes. If it was about the Holocaust, if it was about the miracle of the Zionist project, if it was about the 67 war, all of those stories, they were big narratives. And so to me, they were my identity. And, and that's kind of how we are 
defining ourselves through those very, very big stories. So what I'm trying to do when I bring people together in the same space, either online or face-to-face -face in the same room, is to kind of forget about those narratives for a second, or even more, and to try to connect to the personal sort of stories. So, but what does it mean to you? Who are you? What is the story of your family? Where were you born? Where were your parents, grandparents born? Why does this land mean to you? Why does, it, does this word mean to you? And, and what kind of emotions come up when you're sharing those stories? So even before sharing those stories, kind of taking a step back and doing this reflective um, introspection work on what are my, my stories? Why is it so personal? Why am I anxious about talking to Palestinians? And uncovering and all those layers of identities through our personal stories. And also identifying the emotions. Because we will connect through those emotions. Because it doesn't matter if we're talking about a Palestinian who lost their homes, whose family were displaced during the Nakba, or if we're talking about Jews who also have a story of being moved around the world for thousands of years. If we talk about loss, about pain, about hope, empathy, love, those emotions are universal. And we can touch those emotions only if we talk about personal stories and not about big, heavy narratives with an agenda. So the first step to me is, okay, but who are you, you? What are the stories that shape you? And let's talk about those stories, share those stories, look at them and see how we can connect and how we can learn to listen to one another. Sarah, when you have people together sharing their stories and their experiences, and yet there are truths that are conflicting, how do people respond to those conflicting narratives? So I think I'm going to answer to your question in, in, with two different answers uh, that conflict one another. So the first one is about it's a lot harder to challenge the truth of a personal stories that a personal story than it is to challenge the truth of a national narrative. Because national narratives, we're going to talk about numbers, um, six million Jews, eight hundred thousand Palestinians, and you know you're going to argue about those numbers, you're going to argue about the context. And no, but they didn't really leave their houses, they were pushed, no, but they left because they thought they would come back. You know, you're going to argue about those truths because they're not told the same way. But I will have a much harder time to tell you that your grandparents' story is bullshit, in a way. You know, or that your experience is, is not true. I might challenge you to see the perspective of other people who were involved in the story, but I'm not going to challenge your truth. But it might be hard for me to receive that truth. And so the second time, the second part of my answer is that this, it's a process. It doesn't happen just in an hour. It's, it's a long process that we need to learn to listen to each other. And one of the goals is about making understanding that there is enough space for all of our stories. That... Yes, on the ground, we're definitely competing for land. At the end of the day, that's what it is. But it's also because in the where our 
current situation and our histories were told to us is that it's a constant competition. It's either you or me. If you win, I must lose. If I put the Israeli flag in the room, then the Palestinian flag must be gone. If you put the Palestinian flag in the room, then the Israeli flag must be gone. It's like this either or. And so naturally, because that's how we were told our histories and our identities, we think that it's going to be the same with stories. That if I make room for your story of pain, it will erase mine. And it's just wrong. And that's what the tool of storytelling can help us understand, that there is no competition over space for stories. And we just need to take the time to listen and to hear each other. But at the end of the day, it's no competition. Your pain and my pain can coexist. There is enough room for, to be, for them to be held. And your truth and my truth don't compete. My miracle, my miracle can be your Nagba. And, and your Nagba can be my survival. It's, it doesn't mean one has to be erased. When you get to that place of acknowledging that someone's gift in the room is another person's wound or pain, what do you do as a facilitator? Do you try and have a moment of reconciliation or is it simply just an awareness? So it's a process. I'm going to repeat that because those things take time. And so when I'm working with a group, it's over hours and weeks and sometimes months. So they also get to know each other, to trust each other. They like each other and that's part of the process. You see the other as a friend, as a human, as you recognize the emotions in the person. So it, it's part of that. I'm not going to come to people and right away tell them, okay, let's forget your narratives. They don't, they are not important. They are all national agenda that don't leave room for everyone. You're wrong to think that the other side is wrong. Put your fear aware, your fear away and take responsibility for everything. Like that would not work. I would not be very welcomed in any group if that's how I was coming. So as a facilitator, you need to come with a gigantic backpack of empathy and patience because those people are speaking are here because they see some hope but behind every story they share there is pain and fear because we've been denied our existence either as Jews and Israelis or as Palestinians Someone in the world is denying our existence. And even if we can't explain it properly, if it doesn't come out verbally, clearly during the process, I know it's there. So patience and compassion on my hand. And through those stories, those baby steps, we can reach that point of my miracle is your Nagba. My miracle is your disaster. And then I know that one of the emotions that will come will be guilt. I'm not a big believer in guilt. Um, I don't think guilt leads anywhere. And I personally don't feel any uh, based on the history of this country. But I do feel responsibility. I do feel a great deal of responsibility for what could be done now. And for what situation we inherited. And that's, that is kind of my personal point of view, but being stuck in guilt will not help. 
so I kind of want to encourage people to feel responsibility because responsibility can lead to action. How do you take responsibility if you don't feel guilt? Or Sarah, could you help us differentiate guilt and responsibility? So I want to say like there are two things that like there's my personal journey and there's also the journey that each one of my participants are going through that can be unique and individual. So we'll first talk about a bit of what was my own journey um, because that's my truth and um, I, I don't want to speak too much for my participants but I will also give you a, a glimpse of things I've seen. So as I said, my family is from North Africa, from Algeria. I was born in France but my father is also Israeli. I grew up surrounded by anti-Semitism at a level that uh, became part of my daily life that I did not even question it. And I had a father who already lost a home when he was 14, which was Algeria, in a very bloody, bloody, terrifying war. And to him, Israel saved him. I only saw my father smile when we were in Israel. I only saw my father as um, a not threatening fatherly presence when we were in Israel. He was relaxed, he was happy, he was home. And I know my father was in the army and, and was a soldier in two wars. And so I was given this very Zionist mainstream Israeli narrative. But also my dad received all the values that make him a good man through the army, through the life in the kibbutz. And on a personal level, as a little girl, my dad was only at home when he was in Israel. That was clear. France was not his home. And on the other hand, um, I did not particularly feel Israeli growing up, but I also didn't exactly feel, felt French because I was always othered. Uh, my name was wrong. My eyes were too dark. I didn't celebrate the right holidays. We never went skiing. I didn't go on vacation to the right place and we ate couscous every Friday. So it was my identity and, and a lot of things were and I was trying to figure out who I was. So coming to Israel, I discovered the Palestinian story, the Palestinian feelings, emotions and pain and the Palestinian narratives only when I was 22 and when I moved to Israel and I joined a program that brought together Palestinians and Israelis. And to tell you the truth, because Palestinian stories were so invisible to me, I didn't even understand why this program was so special and why it was challenging. I was like, okay, cool, we're going to meet Palestinians, we never see them. But because the Palestinian stories were so invisible to me, Palestinians were so invisible to me that I didn't even understand what I was getting into. It was a process to learn how to listen to those stories. And one way for me to learn to listen to those stories was to not feel guilty because they were not attacks about me. Telling me about the Nagba or telling me about an experience they had at a checkpoint, I had to understand that it was not about me and so it was not against me. I was not there. I didn't know. But now knowledge is power. And you're giving me this power. You're giving me this knowledge. So my duty is to listen to you. And that your trust 
and being the story collector of your stories is giving me a sense of responsibility. And on one hand, I know that for me it was easier to detach myself from this feeling of guilt because I, didn't, I did not grow up here and, um, or not enough. Not, you know, it, I had another home where I didn't belong and also because to me it was very clear that I didn't have another home because where I was born never welcomed me entirely. So that's my journey or the beginning of it and my relationship to guilt. But I know that for young Israeli participants who let's say are right after the army, it's a lot more complex. And that's where I need to really make space for their pain too and their confusion because guilt would come a lot more easily and, and it's my job to make sure that they don't get stuck there. I, I don't want the dialogue process using storytelling. My goal is not only for Israelis to feel bad because there's also room for their pain, for their confusion and there's room for their humanity and there's room for accepting that they didn't know and there's room for the fact that they don't have another home and through this process of making sure everyone gets listened to that everyone gets validated that everyone gets the same amount of compassion from me and the same amount of time slowly we can realize that there is no competition for stories that it's there is enough room and enough time to give to all of those stories and emotions. Sarah, in America, we're having racial conversations about stories that haven't been told. Traditionally, horrific stories of the history of slavery, reconstruction, Jim Crow, systematic racism, mass incarceration. These stories have been whitewashed and not addressed. And now through a renaissance of art and storytelling, through novels and education and journalism, we're being told once again the history and the stories of injustice. And Sarah, you said that every story has a right to be told. When you see legislation in America trying to silence stories, how would you speak to Americans who are constantly battling having their stories weaponized against them? So when I was a student in France, so I'm talking about the early 2000s, and I was in this super elite crazy program where we were studying 40 hours a week, plus had the same amount of homework after high school. And we had this amazing philosophy teacher, and we were talking about civilizations, civilization and truth and nations. And she brought this amazing guest speaker that was a friend of hers, who was an African-American uh, philosophy teacher and sociology teacher from the US and so who was in France. And she came to talk to us about African-American experience and story. And, one of the, and I was the only Jew of the class. And one of the first things she said was that to picture what slavery was, you need to imagine that all Northern Northern uh, America was a concentration camp for African people who were brought from the African continent to North Africa. And I got so triggered by that. I can remember exactly the classroom where I was sitting and how I loved my philosophy teacher and how this guest speaker was charismatic and beautiful and how I looked forward to listen to her. 
but then I blanked out for a good five minutes because I couldn't listen to her after she made that comparison. Because as a Jew who grew up in France and also who has grandparents who, who were affected by the Holocaust, great-grandparents who were killed in Auschwitz, uh, I have one quarter Ashkenazi in my family tree. Uh, it was so hard for me to hear because, you know, our narratives are holy. Our, our narratives should not be compared. And so I, I had a hard time listening to her because she was talking about something that was holy to me. And that's something I constantly keep in mind today because I'm looking at the U.S. and I can see so many commonalities in our struggles, in how our language evolves, and in how, you know, those movements of truth and stories and, and justice. And at the same time, I also remember to always make sure to not trigger anyone by simplifying situations that are at their core different. Because I don't know how people would react. This being said, today, many, many years later, I'm so thankful that she said that sentence because I did not understand slavery as much as I do now, and I didn't understand slavery as much as I did after she spoke. I just wish we didn't held our narratives in such a holy place, that we were allowing ourselves to make room for people to to talk about those things uh, because it is about injustice it's about it's about emotions so that's just a little background that when i'm talking about the united states and when i'm talking about social justice in the us i always have this tiny story of me of little me when i'm 19 not being able to hear this kind of discourse many years later 20 years later I'm here and I'm looking at what's happening in the, U in the US and it's so incredibly inspiring because, so I'm taking back my notes, but um, first of all I think that what's happening in the US and what's happening in Israel and in Europe is that the simplification, the bind, like we want to think in a binary way because it's easier. We want a black and white. In the US it's even easier because you only have two political parties. In Israel, it's, it's more nuanced because we have a thousand political parties. Uh, for those who don't know the Israeli political system, it's not really a thousand, but it's still a lot. <laughs> and, and so I think that the binary way of thinking life and history in black and white without any grayness or colors in between is dangerous. So we always need to remember that there are nuances that uh, they were people in between, they were people on, like they were people in between, not everything was so simple, and our history is complicated because people are complicated. But this being said, we were only given one version of our history because history was mostly written by white, powerful men in situation of, of privilege no matter if it's in Europe, if it's in the US, or if it's here in the Middle East. That's who wrote our stories. And I was listening to a podcast from the US about like, we, where are the stories of enslaved people who were in love? Nobody wrote about that because everything was always written or the movies were made from the point of view of 
of white people. So, so enslaved people were, re were reduced to their enslavement. But they were people. Of course, there must have been other stories. And so we must fight to make room for those stories. And always so annoyed when people come up with cancel culture, because it's not about canceling culture. It's about readjusting the stories we tell. It's about not giving priority to only one type of stories. It's about bringing justice to stories that have been buried. That's a place where our will do a very straightforward comparison with Palestinians. We have not given space to Palestinian stories to be preserved and to be told in this country. The same way that in the US people didn't make space or preserve stories of African Americans or of natives. We erased them and we built on top of them. We think that are big and, and in stone and at last and that we can still see dozens of years later or hundreds of years later. And so to me, it's so incredibly important to not see that we are erasing the dominant stories. We're just making room for those who have been buried. And again, it's not a competition. We've had in like the mainstream stories have been distributed. The story of the Zionist miracle is not, I'm not afraid that it's going to be, that it's going to disappear. It's still there. And it doesn't take anything away from that story, in my opinion, to also tell the stories of the Palestinian families who live in this ground, of the Palestinian culture that, ex that existed here. And, and that's what I want to see happening. I understand why people can see it as a threat, because it's also understanding that some part of our histories are, are dark, true. But it, to me, recognizing those dark aspects of my history, it doesn't take away my legitimacy. It's just giving me even more responsibility. But this is my home. So I want Palestinian stories to also be part of my identity because I, I need to carry them. If this is my land, then all the stories of this land are mine. And I need to give them respect. Planting a tree over a Palestinian, a Palestinian village, that's to hide its existence. That's not gonna do it for me. I want to know that story. I want to feel responsible for that story. Um, because our past is complicated, because human beings are complicated, because it's never a straight line, because there are multiple realities existing at the same time. And I think that when we will stop being afraid of being wrong, we will understand that we can tell story and teach story and teach his story in a critical way that can hold so many different emotions, realities, and stories. Um, and yes, it's, you talked about what happened in schools in the US, and it's the same here. Like, we need to teach Palestinian history in Jewish schools. We need to teach our history of this land in every single school in the land, because nobody is going anywhere. Israelis and Palestinians, we're not, nobody's going to disappear tomorrow. So we're going to, the first step and the easy one is at least to make room for our stories. Sarah, today in culture, when someone is a part of a system or they themselves have done harm or wrong, 
we feel like they shouldn't be allowed to tell their story because of perhaps power. How do you get people open to listening to their enemy or people who have perhaps done them harm historically? It brings me back again to, um, to France when I was a kid. So I grew up in northern France and it's a region that has been very affected by both world wars. So in history classes, just in your daily life, stuff written on walls and names to, of buildings and streets, so World War I and World War II have, are everywhere. And, and usually, usually your history teachers are like crazy about those wars and they want to see you, you to see all the movies. So it's very, very present. And, and so I was always amused and amused and annoyed that in the way people were telling the story of France under occupation during World War II, it seemed like every French person was a resistant, that every French people was actively fighting against a German invader, and that all the grandparents of my friends, they were on the right side of history. And I'm like, dude, probably not. Uh, but that's okay. <laughs> um, I was like, we were watching this movie about two Jewish kids being uh, hidden in a Christian school and, and then being arrested by the Nazi police. And I'm looking at this movie and I'm like, you know what? Half of the kids in that room will probably give my name uh, just because they would like to save their ass or save the ass of their little brother who's next in the next classroom or save their parents. Um, and I was 12 and to me it was like, yeah, let's not pretend. Life is complicated. Sometimes you have to make complicated choices. Um, to save my baby sister? Yeah, I would probably, probably give your ass too. Um, so being humble towards history, I think is incredibly important. No matter if our history is 80 years ago or four years ago. People have to make choices with the information they are given at a certain point and with the options they have at a certain point. So people, emotions, history, it's all complicated. And I've been in circles where I have one of my participants who's a young Israeli person who was a soldier, who maybe stood at a checkpoint, maybe even entered Gaza. And I've also been facing Palestinians who, who've, been, who've been throwing rocks, who were not non-violent. You know, because usually when you enter my circle, if you enter one of my programs, you're, you're probably for non-violence resistance and for non-violent action. But that's not how we all started. And first, it's, there are two things happening. There's what's happening in their heads and what's what they're deciding to share in the circle. And then the third thing is why, what I understand and feel. And those can all be very different. And if I hear that the discussion is going towards, especially like I'm just thinking about the few months ago or each time um, children are killed, especially in Gaza, by bombing. And of course the dialogue will go towards, but don't tell me you're trying to to save lives there. Don't, don't tell me you're trying to, to protect Gazan children. Don't tell me that because that's bullshit. Because look at the numbers. And I would have 
Israelis saying, but no, I swear to you, we're trying. Like, I swear to you, they're trying. I swear to you, we're trying. Because maybe they were in that position of making that decision. And it's their own internal struggle. And they're going to get very defensive because they're defensive towards themselves. Now they have to question their entire history, their in all the decisions they've ever made in their life and how they sleep at night with it. And I want to remind everyone that a soldier in Israel is 18, 19. And the narrative he's been fed is that every decision he makes as a soldier is for the survival, not only of himself, but of his family and of the Israeli people. And what kind of weight do you put on the shoulders of someone who's not even old enough to drink in the US? And what we're doing is not easy. Going towards nonviolent resistance and reconciliation and, and doing reconciliation work as a conflict and the injustice and the systemic oppression still exist, that's not easy. And so when those stories come, again, it's about me remembering that their own process is happening in their own head. It will continue after the dialogue circle. It will continue maybe with them for years. And what they decide to share with the room, I can encourage them. I can make sure they are being respected when they do. And then I need to have my internal patience to never judge any story that is being told. But it's a personal process and it's not easy and they will struggle and we are all struggling. How do you fight that urge to judge? How do you develop the muscle of non-judgment as a peacemaker? Well, I would not want to be judged. I hate when I'm being judged. <laughs> uh, so it's just, you know, empathy. Uh, I would not want to be judged. I can get frustrated sometimes that I will try not to show it. I'm like, come on, come on, like, move on, move on. You understood what happened here. Um, oh, we heard you. We heard you. Like, move on. But I'm going to try, like... I'm going to tell you, I, so the first, so first of, like, so I mentioned that enough, but so I grew up as another, as a minority in a country that was not particularly welcoming of my personal identity and multiple stories. And then when I came, when I moved here, because when I came here growing up, it was always, you know, one version of the land. I only saw one dimension of the reality here. But then when I moved here, Almost by accident, I jumped into that world of multiple narratives and realities because I joined this program with Palestinians not knowing what I was getting into. And those discussions, this process I entered and then never really left for 17 years was not always well facilitated. And I got hurt and I didn't always feel heard. And it could have been, it's always a challenging journey but it could have been less painful and so when I do my job I always try to be the facilitator I wished I had and to remember that everyone deserves support so that's I always no matter if the person in front of me is Palestinian or Israeli Muslim Christian Druze Jewish atheist um, they're trying, 
they deserve all my empathy and my support because it's not easy. And I know my words and the words you will hear during the circles, the programs, the trainings, the workshop might stay with them for a while. So let's respect that and help them uh, carry those words even after they leave the room. Sarah, could you give us your definition of empathy? Empathy is the ability to understand that your pain is not more important than someone else's pain. And to give as much importance to someone else's pain than to yours. And it works with love and with joy and with excitement. But I think it's, that it's about generosity, generosity in emotion. Sarah Pearl Benezra, thank you for teaching us today. If you want to help partner with us and bring more of these stories to the podcast, you can do so by becoming a monthly donor for Telos. Just go to our website, telosgroup.org slash donate. This podcast is produced by David Gunger with musical help from John Arndt, Brennan Smiley, and The Brilliance. Undaunted is also produced by David Cadaba and executive produced by Gregory Cleal. Sarah, what's the best book you read during the pandemic? Okay, I'm going to go. Uh, it's, it's actually, a f- there are two that comes up. Okay, two of them are in French. I like to read in French. It's, it, it's, it, because I live in Hebrew and in English, it's easier uh, to read in French. At least I have that. So The Arab of the Future. It's uh, comic books about this French Syrian uh, man who grew up between the Middle East and France and who talks about in the 80s. So he talks about his experience. Uh, it's by Riyad Satouf. And the other one is a feminist essay called The Lesbian Genius, also by the, by the French woman called Alice Coffin. And it's about um, intersectionality. And, and how we can be better allies and make room for women also in history. Sarah, Tel Aviv is an amazing city for food. If we were going to have a meal in Tel Aviv, what would you suggest for food? I would go for Thai food. Thai food in Tel Aviv? I really love Thai food and there are a bunch of very good Thai restaurants in Tel Aviv. What is a film that you feel like we all should watch? Okay, I'm going to go very far for oh, another answer you don't expect. Um, it's a Bollywood movie from the year 2000. It's called Fana. Because I feel that if I say any movie about Israel-Palestine, whoever listens to this, they've already heard about it or you've mentioned it somewhere. So I'm going to take you to Fana, F-A-N-A-A, which is a Bollywood movie from the early 2000s. That is a love story. It's a Bollywood movie, but it's about nuances and identity and good or bad, it's a woman who falls in love with a man who um, might or might not be a terrorist, um, in her words. And, um, and yes, and their love story with the hidden identity, and it's Pakistan and India, and it's powerful. I love it. I love our Bollywood movies. We'll see you next week with a brand new episode. I'm David Gunger. I hope that you'll stay curious.